In Matthew 4.19, Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Join us in this conversation as we discuss following Jesus, leadership, and doing life with others. Welcome to the 419 Disciple Makers Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 419 Disciple Makers Podcast. I'm your host today, Mark Danzi, and we're excited to have with us one of my dear friends, John Fowler. Welcome, John. Hey, Mark. How's it going today? You have shown up early in the morning to bless us here with a big smile and uh, to have conversation about your faith in Christ and how God's used you as a leader and as a dad and as a husband and all kinds of good things. So we're so glad that you're here today. Uh, thank you. I'm humbled to be here. Thank you. Well, it's a pleasure. I can't wait for our guests to get to know you and your story because you have one of those stories I tell people all the time. I, I guess that's okay to do that, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you're not. I didn't know I had a story. <laughs> <laughs> well, you do because I tell it to people all the time. Oh, thank you. Now, I first heard you speak at a men's retreat called Walk to Emmaus, which is a global ministry for men and women, of course. And yes. uh, they have different speakers. And I heard you speak, and I was just uh, so humbled. And I invited you to play golf, or you invited me to play golf, or somehow that's worked out. We've just mm-hmm. become friends over the years. And so I appreciate uh, you doing this today. I understand you were born and raised in Indianapolis. Indianapolis, Indiana. What was it like growing up in Indianapolis? What was it in the 80s? Uh, well, you're too kind. <laughs> no, uh, in the 70s okay. and early 60s. and But I was fortunate enough to grow up in a Midwestern area, a family of eight, five boys and three girls. Mm. And um, I was third from the youngest. And um, bedroom community. Mm-hmm. Um, we were n- not... Um, middle class at any point uh, but my dad worked three jobs and you know uh, it was it was just a a blessing we never wanted for much Mm -hmm. that we knew about right yeah and uh, was it a faith-based home did you find yourself in church every Sunday Sunday night Wednesday night or what yeah great question Uh, we were our whole family went to church every Sunday my to our grandfather's church um, my grandfather was a minister at a place called Second Christian. Oh, well, Church. you didn't have a choice then. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and we would all go lined up and uh, from the from the tallest to the youngest to the smallest. And <laughs> we sat in the pew and just everybody in ranked order. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you think? Um, first off, we're grateful to our parents that made us go to church. Yes. I get that question a lot from parents. Should I make my kids go to church? And Well, should you make them go to school? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, what's good for them, right? So we're grateful that our parents brought us up that way. What do you feel like you took away from your childhood faith, uh, being raised in a Christian home like that that still carries you today? Uh, the power of prayer. Ah. The power of prayer. My grandmother, my my grandfather would always pray for us and uh, ask us to pray. We would have to go around the table and, you know, just out of the blue, they would pick one of us to pray okay. for, for us. So. It was, uh, and we do that. To, I actually started doing that in my family. Really? Yeah. Wonderful. So it was a generational blessing. Yeah, absolutely. The power of prayer, no doubt about it. So you um, stay in Indianapolis through high school, college, go off, do something. What? How, your career? How, what? What took you from Indianapolis? Yeah, I went to Indiana University and Purdue University, and a double major in business uh, from both of those schools. Okay. I uh, was fortunate enough to uh, go to, to school on my dad's GI Bill. Oh, wow. He was a survivor of Pearl Harbor, uh, World War II, of course, and um, USS West Virginia. And um, that was his contribution to our education. He said, if you go in a state-supported school, you get 60% uh, toward you know your college tuition, mm-hmm. and the rest is on you. Um, and he was a, so he was at Pearl Harbor during the attack. Exactly, December seventh. Yeah, December seventh, nineteen. Well, I bet he has some stories to tell, huh? Absolutely. He was actually uh, knocked unconscious. Um, it, all of his friends went out on Saturday night to have fun, mm-hmm. and uh, he stayed behind. He was a chief petty officer and um, was asleep when Pearl Harbor, when the evasion happened, and two of his. Um, Two of his um, kitchen stewards actually got on the guns and shot down 50 Japanese planes. Kitchen stewards. Yes. Interesting. Never picked up a weapon, you know, other than obviously in basic training. But um, 
and their names were Dorsey. He would tell us those stories and, you know, we're sitting there with our mouths hanging open, you yeah. know, just hanging on to every word. As a matter of fact, there's a movie, Mark, called Terra Terra that uh, chronicles the lives of the Dorsey brothers. And they both were actually killed, um, uh, but um, they not before shooting down uh, 50 planes. How about that? Yeah. Interesting. What a legacy. So your dad was a warrior, a fighter, served his country. Yes. And put raised you and put you through college. Yes, absolutely. And interestingly, my wife's father, my wife Trudy, she and I have been married 40 years, and I'll get back to Indianapolis in a minute. <laughs> but um, she, her dad was a survivor of World War II as well, but he was on the invasion of Normandy. Wow. And he's still living today. My goodness. Yeah, so what a blessing to have One him. of the few, I imagine. Yes, well, exactly. So I went you. to college there in Indianapolis, um, stayed there for you know, my college career, put my way through school, worked and went to school, 17 hours a semester and 35 hours a week work, and ended up um, getting into the electronics industry, which took me to Chicago, in which in Chicago, my um, Trudy came out and we were married. Um, at the Hoffman Estates Christian Church on Higgins Road you 40 years ago this year. How about it? Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So you had known Trudy back in Indianapolis. We actually met on a blind date. Okay. Yeah. Her sister lived in Indianapolis. I um, had just told a college friend of mine, I described Trudy perfectly. I said, I want to meet someone that's from out of Indianapolis that was that's about... Five, nine, <laughs> about 120 pounds. What color eyes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And when she ran into Trudy, she said, where are you from? Trudy said, Connecticut. She said, and you're here for what reason? She said, to meet, to um, to visit with my sister. And uh, she said, I've got someone that just described you. How about that? That's the way God works. You <laughs> or- ordered her up, huh? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Well, that, that is wonderful. So, um, so you go to Chicago, you guys get married. Now, was your faith intact through all of this, or do you have that story where you kind of walk away from the church in those college years, or what? Um, I was trying to stay faithful, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, college was fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. uh, well, fun in that way, I thought. But um, no, I, I I went away, you know, drifted away for a while, and, um, and then came back after— you know, me- meeting Trudy and getting grounded and, you know, and then I lost my mom and that really kind of, that was a, a low time in my life, mm-hmm. but um, lost her to cancer, lymphoma. Um, I was 23, 26 at the time. Oh, wow. Yeah, so. Interesting. Yeah. And so uh, you go into the business world and uh, where did you start really coming back to your faith life? Where did that drift it away? But where did that? What happened that caused that turn to your faith? Yeah, I think it was my the 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 dependence on God in my life after my mom passed. Uh, you know, it was a lonely time, um, a time of reflection, a time of understanding who she was and the gift that she had provided to me uh, through the Word of God. Wow. Yeah. And so, just her legacy, more or less, was Absolutely. still living on and. In, in you growing your faith. I think that's so important for parents to remember, don't you, John? I do. I do. And hopefully, you know, we always hope that our children pick up, Mark, on on those while we're living. Yeah. You know, and trying to get those nuggets while we're living. Yeah. And uh, not wait until after we go, we're gone, you know. Yeah. It, it's And that's for our benefit. So we get to see it. Yeah. But in the end, it's about them that's and their relationship point. with God, isn't it? it Regardless is. of how that that happens. I hear that story a lot. Um, parents kind of disillusioned that their kids are not walking with God. If you're a parent out there today, you'd be encouraged. Uh, you have given your kids the word of God. You've given them the example of prayer, love and grace, forgiveness. They'll come back around. That's a, that's a, uh, that's a promise of scripture. Mm. No doubt about it. Yeah. So, um, so when you return back to your faith, you're obviously in business. Uh, Trudy has been a woman of faith this time, I imagine. And, she was instrumental in that as well, or did you kind of lead her into faith in Christ? No, we actually grew together. We were, um, 
I was, we attended, we both attended church and with a name like John Wesley Fowler, it's kind of hard not to be Methodist. <laughs> <laughs> and she attended a Methodist church in Connecticut, Her, she and her family. She comes from a family of six girls and five boys and three girls. So uh, we were, we were equally yoked. Uh-huh. Yeah. She, um, in, in terms of our faith growth. And then we got closer to Christ together and start attending church um, together and been uh, been together ever since wow. in Christ. So you mentioned uh, your mom, of course, being a legacy to your faith. What Has there been somebody else along the way that's kind of invested in you or took time with you or helped you grow in your faith? And, and my dad, of course. I didn't okay. mention my dad. My dad was, ex- uh, he was a pillar in our home. Not only did he work a lot, but he also uh, would ground us in faith. Um, he was an elder in the church, uh, Disciples of Christ Church in Indianapolis, and my mom was in the choir, but the two of them were a tag team for us. I mean, they were equal in their contribution. It's just that my mom's death kind of really honed me in to really staying uh, faithful and being obedient to the Word of God. Mm. I'm going to ask you a tough question to answer right now. Um, but what would you want your mom to know about you now as as, as a man of God? Mm. Uh, first and foremost, that her words, her actions allowed me to grow and to bear fruit in our family mm. with my brothers and sisters, hopefully, mm-hmm. as well as my immediate family with my children. Yeah, I think that's happening, John. Mm. Praise God. Yeah. <laughs> I really do. Thanks. So um, after your, so your parents obviously were instrumental in forming your faith. What about um, as you've gone on into business, into church life? We talked about the walk to Emmaus, men's retreats, things like that. Uh, has there been any other, uh, say, men or women, per se, that have come around you and kind of helped you in this journey? Yeah, we attended... Uh... For 11 years, this this is an amazing, I don't think I've ever shared this, uh, for 11 years we attended a church here in the Atlanta area called Mount Perrin. Our youngest son, uh, no, I'm sorry, our oldest son, Wesley, uh, went to private school there, church. It was a, a, a K through five. Mm-hmm. And um, I was a usher. We were there for 11 years and hadn't joined. <laughs> and so you're an usher still hiding in the back. <laughs> still hiding in the back. But you know, it was that kind of in the background um on my own time type of relationship and listening to the word of God every Sunday that really honed me mm-hmm. to practice what I was learning mm-hmm. and hearing. And I I remember Paul Walker um Senior, as he was the 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 pastor there, um, would always use words, and he reminded me of my grandfather. You know, just the types of uh-huh. of sermon and mm-hmm. words that he would use. Long story short, that helped hone me. And then we left there, and we went to um, as the boys got older, and in an African American family, and we would have um, our. You know, our children were not around African-American kids. So we said, you know what, as they got older, they've got to be around some children because we lived in the suburbs. We were, you know, um, they went to school, the predominantly white schools. And we said, you know, we've got to really get them around some children of color so that they could really appreciate, you know, their their upbringing, their heritage. Mm Mm-hmm. So we attended a church in Alpharetta called St. James United Methodist Church. Oh, you came back to the Methodist thing, <laughs> yes, huh? we did. <laughs> John Wesley. That's right. Yeah, I was destined. You yeah. Know? <laughs> oh, predestined. predestined by the name of John Wesley. <laughs> so we ended up going to St. James United Methodist Church. It was the oldest um, uh, African-American church in Georgia. I have no idea. Yeah. That. Uh, I think they cele- we celebrated a hundred and. 50 some odd years here recently. And so the boys were able to get around some of their contemporaries and, you know, understand, you know, uh, more about their culture. And so we did that for 
Yeah, we've been going there now, going on 20-some-odd years. Did you ever join? We we joined. Okay. Yes, yes. <laughs> Great point. Yeah, we joined uh, shortly after attending. Okay. <laughs> and um, I was a uh, lay leader in the church and um, very active in, in stewardship. And Trudy and I both, we, we facilitated the First Crown Ministry course. And one of the things that we just, we had a yearning for, God's word and to, for that word to be applied in the life of uh, of others. And so we did that for a while. And then a friend of ours introduced us to something called the walk to Emmaus. Mm-hmm. And he asked me, um, Robert Sutter, a good friend of mine, uh, int- asked me, we, we were actually, we sold our home and we were living in his uh, <laughs> pool house. Oh. Yeah. While we, while our home was being built. So long story short, we had, that experience, and we started talking with he and his wife, um, and we we said, you know what, uh, Robert asked me to to attend this, and so after first time, I said, well, maybe next year, and then the second time, well, maybe next year. And <laughs> I told Trudy, I said, if he asked me again, I'm going to do this because uh-huh. you know, and because I'd ask Trudy, and she would say, ah, I don't think I'm ready. I'm ready. So third time he asked me, I said, yep. I'll do it. I said, Trudy, he asked me. I said, yes. She said, okay, sign me up. Ah, Lo and so behold, the third time really is the charm. Is the charm. Is that, is that what? <laughs> so um, she said, well, this walk to Emmaus, she said, Michelle, one of our friends, Barnes, Michelle Barnes and James have been asking me for about seven years. I said, so you're just now telling me. Right? <laughs> so, and then we went to the walk to Emmaus and it was awesome. It really formulated um and brought to life, and Mark, I'll give you this, and I'll I'll shut up. No, this is about you. Are you <laughs> okay. kidding me? Um, for me, the walk to Emmaus was like because of all of the experiences we have gone through. We were in disciple one, disciple two, and um, you know, journey. We were, had gone through a number of different um, studies, mm-hmm. but those were, in my opinion, equipping. Mm-hmm ministries for me. They equip me with the word of God, help me study, help me. But the walk to Emmaus to me allowed me to apply all of those studies and all of God's word and putting it into action. How about that? And it it was the culmination of all those studies and that. But I, I always, I liken it to a gas tank. When I went to mm-hmm. Emmaus I thought that maybe because of all the equipping, I was probably, in terms of my faith walk, uh, maybe halfway full. Okay. My tank was half full. Mm-hmm. Just over half full. Just over half. Yeah. By the time I came back from Emmaus, I realized that the light was on, wow. on empty. And I had so much headroom to grow. Interesting. So what you thought, where you thought you were in your growth, you learned that... Mm. There was so much more to experience. Absolutely. John, so many people, you know, there's not a magic pill in, in Christianity. There's not a, a ma- you know, one place or one church to go to or one pastor to listen to. But I will say that the walk to Emmaus uh, for so many people has been instrumental. Mm. For those of you that's never been, it's a 72-hour, three-and-a-half, four-day deep dive immersion from a Thursday night to a Sunday afternoon and many people resist it because, well, that sounds like quite a time commitment. But rarely is a person comes back from that weekend that doesn't say, "I'm, you know, Jesus met me there. Mm-hmm. God was there. God's people were there. And uh, it's typically a spiritual mile marker for a lot of people. For me, I'll tell you that um, I'm glad you brought it up. I always just say the top three spiritual experiences I've had since salvation and then the infilling of the Holy Spirit um, was my first mission trip my first trip to Israel, and my walk to Emmaus. Wow. Those three things really have formed uh, the next step for me. Mm-hmm. I won't say that the, the individual things formed me completely, sure. but they, they certainly led to the next to the next realization. So interesting, you talked about um, wanting your kids to grow up in, a, uh, in an African-American environment because mm-hmm. you had found yourself in pretty much a Caucasian experience. Uh, we are right in the middle, well, we're right in the middle of what the world is waking up to, which is the social injustice and, of course, all that. How have you been experiencing, say, the last, (laughs) 
this is a, I'm going to go ahead and qualify. This as a dumb question. <laughs> the last four or five months, uh, you've been for the last 50 years oh, or so. Yeah. yeah right. Um, I don't want to give away your age. So That's yeah. fine. Yeah. <laughs> How have, what's been your approach or your prayer life, your thought life been like, say just even in the last six months around social injustice? Yeah. It's been a, in a word, probably a way of helping my white brethren understand 64 years of struggle in uh, discriminatory acts. And it's hard to put into, it's hard, you know, I'll use this term. If you've ever had a back pain, Mm -hmm. you can tell people all day long how your back hurts. But it's not until they have their own back pain that they realize, man, this really does hurt. Interesting. So I was fortunate enough, Mark, to um, be in Indianapolis. And um, in the first, in 1967, 68, I was the first generation of bust individuals for racial equality. Uh-huh. We were going to an all-black um, elementary school and I was bust. Actually, it was before that because wow, it's actually about sixty-four. I was bust um, to a predominantly white school, and the guy. And what grade are you in at this time? Yeah, right? second grade. So second it was actually okay. yeah, way before. You're just a child. <laughs> yeah, right. I was a child, but I was bust for racial equality because our school, the line was um, the the school zone went right. In our backyard. Uh-huh. So the guy behind me, uh, Kevin, went to a school called Grandview. I went to, I was bused to a school called Cricket Creek Elementary, where I was one of two African-Americans in my class. The other African-American in my, cl- actually one of three, two guys and one girl. And um, the one guy, Steve Hill, is still my friend today. And he and I were the only two in our class. And um, my dad told me, he said, one day you'll realize how blessed you were to be able to have gone to that environment. Well, I couldn't understand at the time. I'm crying. You know, there's nobody around. I don't know these people. Uh You know, I don't like my teacher. She doesn't like me. All of that. And, um, you know, some 60 years later, not that many, but... 58 years later, I realized it was one of the best things that ever happened to me because it allowed me to understand and to live in a world where I was different, which was a positive, to be able to use that difference to help the majority white people understand that, you know what, we're really no different. Mm -hmm. So the last four months have been a microcosm of the experiences that I've experienced gone through over the last 60 years. Wow. And um, has it been emotional for you, John, in any way? (laughs) Emotional is an understatement. um, The gamut of emotions from anger to seeing George Floyd die. Right. You know, at the hands of someone. Right. I mean, on television. Yeah. The video, the video is just disturbing. So anger um, and then moving from anger into into spiritual, I'll use the term, um, into repentance. Mm. You know, I'm I'm standing in the gap in prayer for people who just are ignorant and don't, and and I don't mean this in a negative way, but they're unaware of the harm that they cause another person and you have to pray for them. So I went the whole gamut of emotions. Mm. My goodness. Yeah, I think what you're saying is so important because um, what I was hearing you, my heart was going out to you as a second grade little boy Mm. in that I don't know if the experience was for you or if the experience was using you Mm. to educate uh, uh, white kids actually there. And so I guess guess the powers that be made some decision at some point that this was the right thing to do and— you're telling me that many years later, it was one of the biggest blessings of your life. Yeah, and I could not have imagined it at the time. Mm-hmm. And and it's helped me, and you talk about, um, Mark, in business. It's helped me tremendously in business. Um, but answering your question specifically relative to the last four months, 
I have no less than 50 of my white friends have reached out to me asking for my opinion as to what can we do? What can I do? They, I mean, in, they're really asking in earnest, mm-hmm. what can I do differently? What can I do to help? And the real way I feel um, people of the white persuasion can help is to learn and to be aware of the struggle, but also to, like you're doing, listen to to elevate the conversation, to have a conversation with someone that is outside of their sphere of influence, mm-hmm. to go to dinner, to dine, to to socialize with someone outside of their race. Because I think we get so exclusive in our relationships that we forget <laughs> to be inclusive. Mm. Yeah, we do tend to clot, don't we? We do. <laughs> clot, that's a great <laughs> we word. We do tend to clot. Yeah. So um, what is it that you would want, um, sounds like, you know, just experience friendships. What is it that you really would want, say, your white brothers and sisters to know mm. um, about the, Afri- the, the African-American experience, the black experience in the U.S.? For you, you have your own personal story. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it that you would want them to know about you? I was, I've been fortunate enough to travel globally. I was a global director for a Fortune 500 company. Um, and had seven global regions reporting to me. And one thing that I learned in my experiences in dealing with people, Mark, from literally around the world, is there are three things that every person strives for. Number one is security for their family. Mm -hmm. And a good life would be number two, just a basic good life. Mm -hmm. And the third is respect. Mm. And I don't care what race, nationality, those three things are critical. Yeah. But when they're compromised by someone trying to, if you will, um, de-emphasize one of those three mm-hmm. or even take away one of those three, mm-hmm. then that's where I think the discriminatory practices happen, mm-hmm. the, re- the racial bias happens, the implicit, the systematic racism, these are all alive today. Mm-hmm. And we have got to raise the conversation in order to eliminate them. Wow. I like that. Raise it to eliminate. Did you experience, I know you've experienced racism here in the United States, but being the global traveler that you've been, um, have you also experienced racism in other parts of the world too, or is it exclusively an American thing? For you? No, it's, it's not exclusively in America. Um, when I was traveling, well, first, before I even go there, we we brought our children up. We have two sons. Wesley is uh, three years older than Dexter. And we brought our sons up to have a healthy understanding of their race so that they could survive being pulled over by an officer. In a, <laughs> and it is as basic in an African-American household, Mark, to have that conversation about how to survive an encounter with a police officer Mm. as it's common to have a premarital sex conversation in a white household. It's the birds. It's like the birds and the bees or make sure you brush your teeth kind of thing. Exactly. Wow. I mean, it's a survival um, story. It's a survival upbringing. But anyway, around the world, the, there the most racist place that I ever visited in my global travels was, and this is really crazy, but it was in Saudi Arabia. Really? I was there with one of my research and development um, guys, Peter Ship. I'll never forget this. And <clears throat> I said, Peter, you know, we were both going, number one, we couldn't take our Bibles with us or anything like sure. that um, because it, obviously that's against the law. And I, but, I want to just stop and pause sure. right there. Carrying a Bible into Saudi Arabia is against the law. Yes. My goodness. Oh, yeah. No religious material at all. And and you have to sign in, on your visa. Yeah. You have to sign a death certificate on top of it. Right. Just in case you do something against the state, they have the right to put you to death. My goodness. So. You know, I had to caution, you know, is it really worth this trip? <laughs> right. How much money are we actually going to make here? 
So Peter and I are traveling together. So we go to we go to this place, and I said, Peter, you know, um, the, the discrimination in Saudi Arabia was not against me. The discrimination was against Peter, and I saw it firsthand. And I saw the discrimination against the um, the East Indian culture. Now Peter is white. Peter's white. Interesting. So I go there. I'm accepted. I mean, you, I'm, I'm a I'm a brother of color. Uh-huh. Peter goes there, and then I noticed why. So I'm at the airport leaving after all the. So let me um, let me get, not get ahead of myself. So so I get I take ill because of drinking the water. Oh. <laughs> so anyway, I got a parasite. That was a whole other story. Long story short, I I, I take ill, um, and I go to a business meeting and I take ill and I'm, you know, up Chuck right there. I mean, I did the, the, the Bush senior. You know? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I'm right in the middle of my presentation. I take ill. Oh, no. And there it goes all over the oh, beautiful. You know, floor and the boardroom beautiful. table. And all. So anyway, they called a person in. They bark barking orders to this East Indian who was a secretary. And they had to come and clean it up. Well, I felt sorry, so I'm down. I'm trying to clean it up, and they, oh no, you you don't touch any of this. Mm-hmm. This that's their job. Mm-hmm. So that was the first discriminatory action I saw. Interesting. So I left that, and then the second was when I was leaving. I saw some American um, white American travelers being totally disrespectful because they the plane had left. The, actually, the plane was there. The door had shut, and they're Americans, clearly Americans, you know, loud, boisterous, <laughs> white guys, you know, mm-hmm. barking orders to the flight attendant who was Saudi Arabian, mm-hmm. demanding that they get on this flight, and you know, and the more they demanded, the more obstinate the the people became. And I'm sitting there just watching this. So mm-hmm. that was an example. So that was that racism was so obvious mm-hmm. on both sides, looking at how that transacted. And I told Peter, I said, Peter, dude, if something goes down, I'm taking my T-shirt. I'm wrapping it around my head. <laughs> You're in trouble. <laughs> so, so, so he, he, we laughed at it, but you know, he, he he really felt the discrimination. Interesting. Yeah. It's not an ex- exclusively a black thing, is it? No. Racism no. around the world and different class systems. You know, my wife and I have been uh, hooked on this series, Amer- uh, masterpiece theater thing called Poldark. And uh, it's seventeen late 1700s Britain. And the class system between the gents, uh, you know, the gentries and the common workers. Mm. They actually called... They actually call just common workers, kind of like me, uh, vulgars, mm. you know. <laughs> and you see, I guess you've seen it, we've seen it all through time. The Jews were held sure. as slaves for 400 years by Pharaoh. And so it, it really is, though, this, go back to those three things you, you said that everybody wants. And I think that was security, mm-hmm. just a basic mm-hmm. good life mm-hmm. and respect. And respect. Yeah. I, I think those are, uh, it just seems to me as a human being, those things should all be in place for everybody. Yes. And, and Mark, you, you mentioned something else, um, and I'm reflecting on, on your question about the last four months. It, it's taken 400 years mm. for us to get to this point mm-hmm. where we're surfacing racism and it's, it's elevated to a point of conversation. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be overnight fix. Yeah. We're not going to flip a switch and it's going to change tomorrow. The protests are a good thing to raise awareness Nobody's interested in the violence. It's a bad thing. Sure, but um, and the agitators and the and you know those that are there to cause issue, they're they're impl- implants, mm-hmm. of course, in these protests to cause disruption. That's that's. I mean, so let's not be fooled as a viewing population mm-hmm. that the protesters are the ones doing the violence. Mm-hmm. They're, they are protesting, and then the agitators, the, the extremists infiltrate, and they come out, and they break the windows, and then all of a sudden, panic, you know, people taking stuff right. as a result of somebody breaking a window at a, you know. Right. But anyway, I just wanted to kind of clear that 
Well, let, let me tell you a part that I have just found. It's not confusing, John, but it's perplexing to mm-hmm. me. And maybe you can help me understand this better. By the way, thank you so much for us having this dialogue. I'm really excited about September. We're going to be uh, several of my white friends and several of your black friends are going to be getting together online for Absolutely. a conversation on Tuesday nights. And really excited about that, honestly. Looking forward to it. Um, what's perplexing, though, to me is is I, I would understand this better if it were... Uh, white police officers, mm-hmm. um, you know, mistreating African-Americans. Um, and the George Floyd scenario, to me, makes, I, I understand, you know, it, as evil as that is, I mm-hmm. understand that. What I don't understand are the Af- African-American protesters, you'll see images or pictures, like yelling into the face of a black officer. Mm-hmm. Or even, what's even more perplexing, mm-hmm. is a white protester yelling into the face of a black officer mm-hmm. that black lives matter. It's, mm-hmm. I don't, that part of it just makes me kind of sit back and scratch my head a little bit. How do yeah. you describe that scene? How, what, what's really happening there? Yeah. It, I, I, and that's a great point. One of the things that's, um, that the police reform, in my opinion, is not race reform. It's not black or white, it's police reform. So oh, okay. the police, because they have the power and the, they, they and you know, there may be psycho, psychological issues with having the power and I'm, you need to do what I say and I'm going to beat you regardless of your color because I have the power uh-huh. as a police officer. Right. So that I think it it raises its um, its uh, awareness. That awareness is, is not racial. Yeah, it's power because gotcha. I've got a a gun. I've got the right to shoot. I've got a billy club club, and I've got the right to hit because you don't say you don't do what I say. Yeah, I th- I think that's more of that than it is black on black or black on white. Um, it reminds me of a story here in Atlanta that um, there was an officer. I used to run across this guy when I my global travels. This guy was a black guy, maybe six six, uh, down at the Atlanta airport, and he was just a rude person. Um, ultimately, he got fired because he body slammed a white woman. Mm. Um, but he was rude to everybody. So it wasn't a. It's not, in my opinion, around race as much as it's power. I got you. Yeah. Okay. That makes a little more sense to me. It's, it, it just, I know from my view of seeing that it just was very interesting. Mm-hmm. I guess I'll just say it that way. Yeah. I, I'm always curious more about the backstory of that. Than yeah. And to your point, how can you beat up another brother of color if we're, we're on the same side, so to speak? Right. Well, and not, let's be real. There's racism within cultures. Uh, oh yeah. Okay. There's colorism within mm-hmm. the African-American race. Really? Oh, yeah. I mean, light-skinned, dark-skinned, and that comes from just years of, of – and it's not just in the African-American culture. Right. It's in Latino. Indian culture. The Indian culture, the uh, – and it may be even in, in white culture that I don't – I'm unaware of, but it's definitely in other cultures. Interesting. Yeah. This is such a fascinating conversation. Yeah. I'm really looking forward. I wish maybe we could somehow record those conversations <laughs> we're going to be having in September. Yeah, good point. It would be. Uh, well, thank you for what you're doing. Oh, thank you for God. just being yourself, loving Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, I will tell probably what I know about you, mm-hmm. your legacy as a father. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe that's true for all of us as a father. Our, we will be, we're leaving children in this world to do something, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, your story about um, working seven days a week, mm. uh, having two young children, uh, and then always wondering, was that the right thing or wrong thing to do? Now, what would you say to specifically young fathers or young mothers out there? Mm. You've gone through that phase. I have. And you have grandchildren now. I have. I, well, you want to take a minute to brag on them? <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for bringing it up. Yes, I am. Let me see. I'm a girl grandpa. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> grandpa, girl, grand, whatever they so say. So all your grandchildren are girls? Yes, they are. Is that why you're wearing a pink shirt? That's probably it. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, I have three grand grandgirls, and they are awesome. I've got Naya. She's six. 
Um, then I've got Brielle. Brielle's actually here. Naya's in, in Las Vegas. She's okay. Dexter's oldest, our, our youngest son's oldest um, child. She's six. And then Brielle is two, and she lives 13 minutes away. Oh, and um, and so we see her all the time. You're not trying to spoil her, are you? Oh, come on. Absolutely. <laughs> and then I've got Ivy, and she's nine days older, excuse me, nine days younger than Brielle. Beautiful names. Yeah, thank you. And so um, uh, I don't get to see Naya and uh, Ivy face-to-face too often in this social distancing and all of that. Yeah. But uh, we FaceTime quite a bit. And uh, but yeah, so so I've got those two or those three. And then we have um, I'm fortunate enough to, uh, to have uh, two awesome new daughters. Uh, Wesley's uh, daughter is not daughter. My daughter, um, Wesley's wife, okay. Sierra. Okay, your daughter-in-law. My, yeah. I, no, she's my daughter. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, she's take my the daughter. Yeah, yeah, okay. take the in-law out. And then I've got um, uh, Aaliyah, who is Dexter's do- Dexter's wife, okay. is my other daughter. How about that? And uh, they both, we talk about race. Um, Sierra is from, uh, her dad is African-American, her mom is white. Okay. And so Brielle is a quarter white. Okay. Yeah. And so, um, and then uh, Aaliyah is Persian. Okay. And so we have a beautiful rainbow I family. Would say so. And so um, we are, she's 100% Persian. So Dexter and uh, their children are half African American and half Persian. How about that? So we, we're just awesome. We, we just, we just, the, that family dynamic, we, we just love being together. Oh, I can only imagine. Yeah. Well, growing up, um, trying to raise two young boys mm. and make a living and yes. become successful. Um, tell, bless our audience this morning mm. with this story of how you um, were trying to get out there and kill yes. it and make it happen. And then your two boys and your wife were kind of figuring out life with a busy dad. Yeah. So, Mark, uh, yeah, that story is, is near and dear to my heart. Um, we were, I was actually starting a business. Um, I was fortunate enough to be one of the partners in a startup Um that was a spinoff from Circuit City called CarMax. Ah, I've heard of it. <laughs> yep. And so uh, the we had a very ambitious business goal of 100 stores uh, throughout the U.S. in 100 days. Wow. And one of the things that we were doing, um, we were, it was a pre-IPO. So we were doing an initial public offering for the New York Stock Exchange. Um, and we had to get Everything had to be picture perfect. So uh, they asked me to put together a, a plan to open the stores and some of the stores in the in Atlanta area. And um, so that it could be a showcase for, if you will, the national rollout. Mm-hmm. So f- I knew there had to be something about this job that was going to be a little bit challenging because my boss gave me the first three weeks off. <laughs> <laughs> Your first three weeks on were off. On, on the job. So he said, he's, I said, hey, Mark, um, I've got a, you know, I've got some vacation plan. He said, listen, hey, take your time. He said, why don't you take the first three weeks paid off, paid vacation, then we'll we'll start you going, hitting the ground running. <laughs> and so I figured something had to be into this. Yeah. Most money I ever made in my life at the time. And, you know, it was a, a great opportunity. Long story short, from that point for the next 16 months and 20 days, it was seven days a week, 7 a.m. to not to 11 p.m. every day. Wow. And had a corporate apartment on the south side of town. And um, I mean, long hours, long, ridiculous hours. And you got two small sons at this time. Two small sons in school. Um, one, they were both doing travel sports. One playing, Wes was playing basketball you know, traveling and, you know, I would, I don't know how we did it, but I would take time off, you know, and just, you know, I got to go and I would go be at his games and go to Dexter's games. And Dexter was traveling baseball and basketball, both. Trudy was going back and forth. We were commuting from East Cobb to Gainesville because at the time there was, you know. That's an hour, hour and a half drive. That's an hour and a half commute. 
uh, for one of them in school, and then they both went to school. But long story short, so I did all this uh, while they were in uh, middle school. And so we ended up um, coming home. I came home one day, and I found them uh, getting along perfectly well without me. It was an out-of-body experience. They were laughing and joking and watching television and telling jokes. And I came through the door, and they were getting along perfectly well without me. Mm. So it bothered me for about six weeks. Lo and behold, Trudy is praying with her small group that I would leave this job. Now, again, Grant. Did you know this at the time? Not at all. (laughs) Not at all. So she's praying with her small group. I asked my boss at the time, which was a strategic question, I said, I'm coming up to the end of my lease on my corporate apartment. Should I re-up or should we go ahead and end this and, you know, plan on me not commuting? His answer would determine whether I would stay or not. Okay. He said, yeah, let's re-up for another year which told me it was time for me to go. So you had to say no. I resigned the next day. Wow. I came home. And the resignation really was hinged upon the fact that you watched your family learn, had learned how to survive without your presence. Absolutely. Absolutely. And as a father with young boys at home, they needed me. So when I walked in, I never forget this. My youngest son said, mom, We've got dad back. (laughs) And so that literally was the turning point in my contribution to being there with my my sons and helping them along the way. They would never, ever appreciate the IPO Mm -hmm. and all the activities that went into the IPO. What they saw is dad wasn't home. Mm -hmm. And when dad came home, they could care less about what I made. I quit the company. I quit CarMax at the time, and I've never, ever left a company without having something in hand. Mm -hmm. This was the first time I ever did that, and it was the best experience. I had more peace from being with my family, not worrying about what the future held. And lo and behold, at the time I had left Kimberly-Clark, I went back. They gave me, I went back to the company, uh, more income, same job, mm-hmm. same phone number, email, office, <laughs> everything. Back in the mo- in the same mode. Huh? Right in the same mode. Well, <clears throat> you know, I, I think about the father out there today, or even the mom, the working, who are desperately trying to make ends meet, desperately, actually beyond that, they're trying to improve the quality of life, mm-hmm. but in doing so, maybe compromising their influence mm-hmm. with their family. So at this point, you got to then attend more of the boys' sports and be more present, I guess, for church with the yes. family and things like that. Uh, looking back on that, um, it sounds like you haven't, but have you ever regretted that or wondered what would have happened if you'd have stayed making all that big money and at the expense of your family? I did not. Um, to this day, I look back at where the stock is <laughs> uh, and where my stock would have been uh-huh. had I uh, had I stayed. But, you know, it pales in comparison to um, literally the life that my boys and I have and my family with Trudy and I have been able to 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 raise our boys with the values and attend church every Sunday and and to be active in their lives. I started coaching our um, our boys' baseball teams, and, you know, and thank God um, right now we have a son that's a professional baseball player and a World Series champ, and even before all of that, um, a uh, Olympian and um, bronze medalist. And, and so, you know, and, and I've got a, a son, an older son that, you know, played basketball at – at uh, Shorter College up in Rome, Georgia, yeah. and Tennessee State, you know. and mm-hmm. uh, But I don't believe that the richness of our lives could have manifested itself to this point without me being there in their lives. Mm-hmm. So dads, and I'll tell you this, 
if you're faced with a decision that pits your family against your career, reevaluate. I was the one saying, hey, without my career, we would not have this beautiful home and all of these things, all the accoutrements of life. Mm -hmm. They pale in comparison to the relationship that you have with your family, with your children, with your wife. Don't sacrifice it for anything. Mm, That's a good word. You know, it reminded me of the story, John, of the, and I don't even know if it's true, but it brings me to tears every time I think about it or tell it. Mm. It's about the little boy who, his daddy was like that. He was just always gone, always. When he was home, he was on his computer, distracted. Mm -hmm. And the little boy uh, was asking his dad, Daddy, how much money do you make? And, of course, many men are so private about these types of things that he didn't want his son to know because he wouldn't wouldn't go around the neighborhood saying Mm -hmm. something, you know. And finally narrowed it down uh, and just basically gave him an answer and said, son, well, I make, uh, you know, $20 an hour mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, to which his little boy came back with a $20 bill from his piggy bank and said, can I have an hour of your time? Mm. Wow. And <laughs> mm. it just hit the father that, you know, mm. his son was willing to, what his son wanted was time. You know, children spell love, T-I-M-E. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and you having the ability then to make that decision to say, I'm going to be a dad. I'm going to be a present dad, a present husband. Because in the long run, mm. that reward mm. is greater than an IPO, greater than a stock. Yes. Yeah. And and what you see in wealthy families a lot of times, and not all of them, of course, but is that they wind up leaving this stuff, all this stuff to their kids to have to sort out. And it pits their kids against each other. <laughs> yes. Now, Mark, that's spot on. You see that, don't yeah. you? Yeah. So I love the way you, when I heard you tell your story to hundreds of men before, you told the story of always wondering if you'd made the right decision, mm-hmm. but standing on a bus, it came to you. Yes. That you did. Tell us that, that story. So, yeah. Um, so here we are at um, Wes and I were at Game 7 of the World Series. Cleveland against the World Series Chicago Cubs. Mm-hmm. Dexter is in the game. Uh, we arrived in Akron and then took a, a bus, or no, we took a, 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 a rental car to um, to Cleveland. We arrived there at 6 o'clock for seven ten game, and we are in the bleachers. We see Aaliyah, uh, Dexter's wife, and we sit there, and we're, having a conversation. Long story short, they win the World Series. I believe Dexter hit a home run. He did. It's, was it first at first bat? First at bat. At game seven. Game I remember seven. that. Yep. He hit a home run. I remember that wondering what the smile on your face oh, must have goodness. been like. <laughs> oh, I, I could. Wes was in line getting pizza for oh, us. Oh, oh, no. But he and Javier Lopez's brother okay. were in line together. Okay. Javier Lopez's brother picks Wes up and they're they're in front of the television and they're both cheering and so they come right back and but but he saw it all okay and so we were and we saw it all and 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 we're just oh you know it just gives you chills to think about that but um but we had an awesome experience with that so we leave that uh, and i got to um wes and i come home the next day and then trudy and i are packing because we've got to go to chicago to get in the parade so we're, Dexter asked us to be in the parade, the World Series parade, open mm-hmm. air bus, Michigan Avenue. We've got all of, you know, f- uh, five million people lining the 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 uh, the, the path, uh, the, 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 the bus route. They're cheering. We're in this open air bus. Um, Jay, uh, we had four players on our bus. Uh, it was um, Chris Bryant. Rizzo, Dexter, and Hayward. And we're all out there just having a phenomenal time. Uh, We're up top. We get to Michigan Avenue. Each of the players are passing the World Series trophy from bus to bus to bus. Mm -hmm. We get to Michigan Avenue. It's Dexter's time to have the trophy. He holds the trophy up in the air. I'm holding him Mm -hmm. while he's holding the trophy right in front of the uh, Citibank building. And uh, he every he holds the trophy up high. He's got his World Series jersey on. Everybody is is cheering him on. He puts the trophy down, gives it to another um, uh, player, turns around, and uh, I don't know if I can hold it together. 
I'm glad that you can't. <laughs> no, that shows us that it's real. Ooh. He turns around and says, Dad, I never could have done it without you. <laughs> He's right. He's and right. I tell you, as a dad, Mark, it is the most rewarding thing you'll ever hear this side of eternity. Mm. Is for your child to tell you that they couldn't have done what they've done without you. Mm. Well, <sighs> you're in tears. Yeah. I'm in tears. Mm. People listening are in tears. Because what you did, John, was you sacrificed your so-called career at the time, Yeah, what you knew to be your career. You resigned. Mm-hmm. And you gave yourself some space. Mm-hmm. One of my mentors says that magic happens in the white space on your calendar. Yes, yes. And you have raised two successful mm-hmm. boys and have a successful marriage. Mm-hmm. That's the definition of success. Mm-hmm. Praise God. That's the definition. But it doesn't end there. Mm-hmm. Because not only have you raised two incredible sons who I'm, I'm sure are listening to this and mm. are grateful for you and your faith, your presence, mm. there are spiritual sons out there. Mm. There are men who didn't have fathers like you had. There are, there are young men who are looking for spiritual leadership mm-hmm. in someone. Yes. And I know for a fact that you are that man. Mm-hmm. Praise God. Thank you, Mark. And so the legacy continues. Mm. And so that's why I'm so excited for you in the future. And and if we had time uh, today, mm. which we don't, we would talk about the young men that you're mentoring, the sure. the way that you're doing that through the church, mm-hmm. um, the way that you and I are, are planning on working together oh, yeah. in the future to to build this, continue this disciple making process for the lives of young men. But you've reminded us today that discipleship starts in the home. Yes. And so many of us look beyond the home. Uh, to make a spiritual impact when the greatest difference is made under under the roof that God gave us. So mm-hmm. thank you so much. Oh, thank you. For it's your been story. A yes. And uh, I will say if you're uh, out there and uh, you're enjoying this podcast, we would ask you to uh, send the link to someone. Uh, may they be blessed by it as well. And as you continue to uh, learn how to be the spiritual leader of your home, your family, your marriage, your children, your place of work, of course, and then involved in your church and in your community. Uh, Just remember that God has a call on your life. God has a plan for you that is somewhat unpredictable. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The only uh, thing that is predictable is that God is faithful. Amen. And if he ordered it, he can pay for it. Mm. And if he called you to do it, it'll happen. I like that. As long as we walk in obedience. So, John, uh, a parting word, if you would, to... uh, to the men out there, <clears throat> speak to specifically to the men or women mm-hmm. who are the uh, folks who are kind of attending church, mm. um, who are involved nominally in their church. Maybe they haven't joined. Maybe they're uh, hiding in the back. And they're wondering, um, w- how could God use them? What's the next step? They're not a Bible scholar. They've never been to seminary. But what is one thing you would encourage them to do today? Mm. Mark, um, as I... As you were asking the question, I'm thinking about the single largest contribution in my life is my wife. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because without her being by my side and allowing me to, sh- for her to sh- help sharpen me, we are Proverbs 27:17 in action as a couple, iron sharpening iron, because she was able to help hone me into being and holding me accountable for being there for not only her, but also for our children. Mm -hmm. And it takes a praying spouse. So whichever side you're on, keep praying. Mm -hmm. So the parting word for each parent is pray for one another so that you can bear good fruit. The tree is known by the fruit it bears. I like that. And so we have been blessed to bear good fruit because we were grounded together. So that's been, that's the parting word, I think, for if, even if you're separate, be the active in your, in the raising or the rearing of your children mm-hmm. because their lives and your fruit depends on that for generational blessings. What a word. Thank you, sir. Yep, man. So if you'd like more information on how you could be a disciple of Jesus who makes disciples of Jesus, please visit our website, 419disciplemakers.org. 
uh, lots of resources there for you, videos, uh, uh, documents, books, white papers, curriculum, all kinds of things to encourage you in your uh, in your journey forward. And um, hopefully one day in the future, you'll be as blessed as me to meet John Fowler, John <laughs> Wesley Fowler, if I got to <laughs> add that too. And uh, so we just pray that today you are blessed. Thank you, Mark. For more information, check out our website, 419disciplemakers.org. 